2: It's Rick
3: Tittle!
4: Alright, we are good to go for the next three hours here on Sports Byline USA. The show is titillating sports with Rick Tittle. That's me. Get it? Got it? Good. The eponymous one coming to you from my home. Got a little quarantine going on if you haven't heard of it. And uh, I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to talk some sports. This is why we're here. Uh, and we talk sports 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. What do you think of that? 1-800-878-PLAY is the number to call. Once again, don't uh, write it down. Just dial it up. 1-800-878-7529. And uh, we'll talk about sports. And we'll talk about any sport that you would like to talk about as well. It doesn't just have to be the uh, main ones. It can be the fringe ones. Uh, I'm not an expert in everything. No one is. <laughs> I'd like to think that somebody is an expert in all sports. Uh, but we do want to hear what you have to say. Also, home and abroad on the American Forces Radio Network. I'm a big fan of our troops, wherever you might happen to be listening. Uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, National Guard, Space Force, Delta Force. You're doing a great job. Stay safe. Come home soon. A couple of apps on your phone. Angry Birds is nice and Netflix and all that. But how about the TuneIn Radio app, the IHAR Radio app, the Stitcher app as well. You can get in that way and uh, get heard. Sportsbyline.com. That's always rolling 24-7. Click listen live. Any emails, Rick at sportsbyline.com. Got some guests today. John Feinstein, the prolific author, has written more than 40 books. He's got a new one. We also have Frank Marshall, who's worked with Steven Spielberg on so many projects. He's directed a new Bee Gees documentary. And also this first hour, we will have uh, Amazon editorial director Sarah Gelman, talking about the books of the year as well want to hear from you though social media wise at rick tittle is the twitter and the facebook page fan page titillating sports with rick tittle and on, on your tv set at crn digital plus two cable radio network challenge Two. got three hours come on back
5: mary's bistro delivery business is bustling and ready to burst
4: orders
6: 34 35 and 36 are up who's handling these Hello, Mary's Bistro, now delivering.
5: It's time to hire.
6: I need Indeed.
5: Indeed you do. The moment you sponsor a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates from our resume database. Indeed delivers two and a half times more hires than the other branded job sites combined, according to Breezy HR 2019. Visit indeed.com slash credit and get a $75 credit for your first job post. Terms and conditions apply.
6: Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically.
1: 800-754-4531. Rick Tittle is a genius, the best show ever, he's so wonderful, genius, the best show ever, he's so wonderful, titillating sports,
4: with Rick Tittle, Rick Tittle is, he's so handsome, he's a genius. All right, thank you for that, and welcome back to the show, Rick Tittle with you, great to have you with us. And your participation, uh, as always, is encouraged at the toll-free line, which is 1-800-878-PLAY. Once again, 1-800-878-7529 is what gets you in. And uh, let's see, the entire country, and I believe me, there's uh, pretty much everyone in America is listening to this right now. So come on and get heard. Next segment, we will have uh, the... Um, uh, Ms. Sarah Gelman from Amazon talking about uh, the best books of 2020. I don't know about you, but I always seem to find books when they're old, and that's because I find an author that I like, and then uh, the book's way old, and then I look at all the other books that that guy has written. <laughs> it's usually the way it goes for me. But anyway, um, top story today, or anyway, what I want to leave the show off with <clears throat> is this Ravens. Steelers debacle, which, you know, the NFL, it was kind of leading us towards this situation where with the pandemic and not being in the bubble and having dozens and dozens of of people, uh, you think about it, you know, over 100 people, when you count about the players and the coaches and front office personnel and clubbies and everything else, that's a lot of people to try to keep COVID free. When you're free to come and go as you'd like even though you want to keep up with protocols so we knew it would be an impossibility but if you're trying to keep up with the latest news about Raven Steelers I don't think you're alone because the league has now moved the game yet again it has been moved multiple times and the players mostly find out on Twitter and they're confused themselves the entire situation started with a couple positive COVID-19 tests with the Ravens. And that raised some safety questions. So Baltimore took some more tests, had more positive tests from players and staff, and then they did it again. They had positive te- new positive tests eight days in a row. So there's now more than 20 players and staff that have contacted the virus or deemed as a close contact. So the Ravens now... Um, Apparently, even yesterday had more positive results. And that was the day they boarded the plane for Pittsburgh. The game will now be played like a getaway baseball game. It'll be Wednesday at 12.40 p.m. West Coast time. Out in Pittsburgh, 3.40 p.m. East Coast time. I can guarantee you, even during World War II, there was no scenario that an NFL game was being played at lunchtime on the West Coast on a Wednesday. So um, Mike Garofalo of NFL Network said as they were getting on the plane, the Ravens, um, they had to identify two more people who had COVID. Now they're on the plane with everyone else. The athletics, Jeff Zerbiak said that the players learned of the tests while we're on the plane, and then so they had to, they were already masked up. But there are rumors that the Ravens could very well boycott this game now that they have over 20 people who will not be participating, staff and players. And the questions of whether a forfeit would play in. And the comparisons about how the league handled the other situation as we saw with the Broncos, who played without a quarterback against the Saints. So right now, um, the game, as I mentioned, will be 340 Eastern Wednesday at at Heinz Field on NBC. The game, do you remember when the game was supposed to be? It was supposed to be the marquee night game on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Now, the reason... That they're not putting it on at prime time is because NBC had a commitment to showing the Rockefeller Center tree lighting ceremony, which to me is listen, I understand if it's the Thanksgiving parade and you got, is that a big uh, revenue producer? Does that get a big rating, the tree lighting ceremony? Uh, It must, if they're committed to it. Or maybe they're just so disgusted with the NFL that they're just like, you know what? We're not moving this thing, too. There's already been jokes that the tree brought into 30 Rock uh, is a Charlie Brown tree with a lot of branches and (laughs) pine needles missing and looks kind of Spartan. I have been to Rockefeller Center when the tree is up and people are ice skating. It's, It's a really cool scene. It's a really crowded scene. Uh, as well. But remember, the game on Thanksgiving, as I said, it was moved a third time. The second time it was moved, it was supposed to be yesterday. And so that was going to allow the players uh, to train and avoid muscle strains. So basically, as soon as my show's over today, you can get ready for a little NFL football between two pretty good teams. You have the last undefeated team, Mercury Morris, standing by with a champagne bottle pink duck atlas liquors uh and then you have the ravens who have the mvp and who thought that they were going to be a little bit better anyway so baltimore's facility uh in the last three days was open for just a monday night walk through (laughs) now i can tell you from just my experience as a college football player the walkthrough is usually the, yeah, it's the evening before the game. And when we were on the road, we would go to the stadium the night before the game, wherever it was, and our, our away games, um, not many did we spend the night because we if we played Santa Clara or San Francisco State or Sonoma State, Chico State, we would just bus it back. But uh, playing against Humboldt State, playing against uh, UC Santa Barbara, which I did. We stayed in Goleta. You go to the field, and you're just in shorts and helmets. You got your jerseys, your shorts, and your helmets, and you do the walkthrough. I loved the walkthrough on a personal level, because I was the quarterback for the team in the walkthrough. They had, I don't know, six, seven quarterbacks? And I always thought, why wouldn't you have just, they were like, we don't want to risk any of them. Can anybody else play quarterback? And I raised my hand, obviously. I'm like, yeah, I play in high school. They go, well, you do it. They wouldn't even risk their seventh-string quarterback getting hurt in the walkthrough. So I would come in, I would switch on the other side of the ball, and then I would throw all the passes every game or every night before the game in the walkthrough. Anyway, I like the walkthrough, but what do you get out of it? What it is, it's the culmination of the entire week of preparation. And thereby, when you think about, um, you know, you watch film. I used to watch film, and it actually was film, and it was black and white. Even in the 80s, we were like, why is this black and white? (laughs) In the early and mid-80s, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) But what we we would do is you'd say, okay, 22. That's the running back. Uh, Their flanker is 17. Their tight end is 88. You have to remember those numbers. Those are their studs. Remember those numbers. Remember those numbers. Those are the numbers. So that's basically how we knew who the danger guys were. But if you think about Lamar Jackson not being able to play today, Mark Andrews, Willie Sneed, Patrick Ricard, Patrick Macari, Matt Skura, Matt Judon, Pernell McPhee, Calais Campbell, Jason Motobuki, Brandon Williams, Jimmy Smith, Tyre Phillips, Derek Wolfe. It goes on and on. Who will be the quarterback for the Ravens? Rg three. That's right. Rg three. Yeah, you know me. You down with OPP? Yeah. Rg three. So he's gonna go today. All right. On the other side, we'll come back. We'll talk a little bookish, book smart, bookwormy stuff. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll see you in a second.
3: In
7: Ich lieb
3: dich nun mal, jeden Berg, jedes Tag, Heimatland, du mein schönes Pfälzerland.
8: And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration.
6: Learn how thousands of smart homeowners are investing about a dollar to avoid expensive home repair bills. John, a former non-customer, said, For about $1 a day, you can have all the major appliances and systems in your home, guaranteed fixed or replaced, with HSC's home warranty coverage. Call now, and the first month is free. If the lines are busy, please call back.
1: 800-410-4771. 800-410-4771. 800-410-4771.
9: That's 800-410-4771
3: Rick Tittle thinks there's a direct correlation between dogs and lightning.
4: Thank you for that, uh, I think. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us, coast to coast, around the world, on American Forces Radio Network. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show Amazon editorial director Sarah Gelman. She is here to talk about the best books of 2020, according to them. And uh, if you know me, you know I'm a voracious reader. Um, I should be on Amazon Anonymous. I buy way too much stuff. But let's talk about those books. First of all, Sarah, welcome back. And um, let's start, why not, with your book of the year called A Knock at Midnight by Brittany K. Barnett. Why could you not put this book down?
11: Yes. Well, thank you for having me again. Um, I love talking about books with voracious readers, and I am also in Amazon Anonymous, so um, we can chat after <laughs> if you want to go through the steps. Um, so a Knock at Midnight is a memoir by a young lawyer named Brittany K. Barnett. And Brittany grew up um, in Texas, and her mother was a nurse and also a drug addict, and she ended up um, being incarcerated. And so Brittany had the experience of going to visit her mother in jail, with her little sister. And because of that, uh, she experienced a lot of families visiting their families in jail and it really changed the course of her life. She became a lawyer and she, she actually was a corporate lawyer working in finance law. So, um, you know how much free time corporate lawyers have in her free time. She basically worked to get people pardoned from jail that were given unfair life sentences during the War on Drugs era, mostly Black Americans. Um, she starts with a woman named Sharonda James, who's given a life sentence for basically driving uh, drugs down the interstate 10, 10 miles or so. Um, and she humanizes these people in a way that is just remarkable, and they become her, her family and friends. So there's something, you know, it teaches you about prison reform. It's also an amazing story about this woman who just doesn't give up and was so she's so inspiring. And she's also so young. Um, I spoke to her two weeks ago. And I had that experience that I've started to have when I go to the doctor and the doctors are younger than I am. And you're kind of (laughs) like, Are you okay to be taking care of my body? I mean, she's so amazing. And she's done so much. It it might make you feel bad about yourself. But um, it's just a remarkable book. And of course, very timely. um, But this book would stand up any year.
4: That's my next question because I have the same discussion with film critics. I think a lot of times in in in, in our um, in our world today, I think when there's an important topic and whether it's race or mm-hmm. gender or you know someone who is in a bad way, someone who is you know underserved, you think, oh, this movie was so great or this book was so great, but in the end, it was a really boring movie. On an important topic. So do you ever find yourself saying, wow, this is so powerful, but this book was a snoozer. I can't, I can't make it one of our books of the year, even though the topic is poignant.
11: Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to say I read a lot of books that I don't like. I generally don't finish them, but the books that I sort of force myself to finish, if I don't feel like they're grabbing me, are books that I feel like will educate me in some way. Um, or open my eyes to something else, and you don't have to like every book that you come upon, even if it's timely. But this book is is not a you know twenty twenty pick. It's a book that was published in twenty twenty that is our best book of the year. Um, again, like she is, I just feel like people need to read this and see what an incredible human being Brittany Barnett is. It, if nothing, it gives you hope that there are incredible people in this world doing amazing things.
4: Um, I remember. I used to work with a guy about, I don't know, 15 years ago and he went on Oprah and and he wrote a book and she held it up and it went from like number, you know, 100,000 on Amazon to 14 in one day because she held it up. So for you guys, when you put this list out, this also is great news for these, uh, these publishers and these authors because they're going to get a lot more love, right?
11: Yeah, I mean, you know, we hope so. And we tend to pick books that we feel like should get more exposure. So the number two book on the list is a novel called Migration. And I wouldn't say this is the the biggest novel of the year. It didn't sell the most copies, but it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful novel and one that we feel like people should read. It's one that haunted us after we finished it. Um, But it also, you know, it's, it takes different things to get different people to read. Some people will buy a book if Oprah holds it up. Some people will buy a book if they see a picture of Kim Kardashian reading it. You know, it just, it's whatever uh, uh, speaks to you. Most people do take recommendations from other readers or people that they trust. So, you know, we strive to be, the, our team is basically a team of readers, people that have expertise in the book business. And we hope that customers trust us to pick books that we've loved and we think they'll love too. A
4: couple more questions for Sarah Gilman from Amazon Books of the Year. The, the way it works for me, and I'm someone, I always have about five books going at once and they're all nonfiction. And, and what I usually do is I'll find a book that I like and whether it's Eric Larson or Hampton Sides, um, if I like it, then I want to read all the other books that they wrote, even if I'm not super interested in the topic. How is that for you where you just have a favorite author and you'll just eat up anything they serve out?
11: Yeah, I mean, that's, I actually love those sorts of stories. I think Kristen Hanna, who's a fiction author, is a great example of that. So she had a book come out, gosh, it was probably about six years ago, called The Nightingale, that I think most people have read, or lovers of fiction. And I'm actually not a huge fan of historical fiction, I will say, and it is historical fiction. And it's an amazing book. So then she had her next book come out, The Great Alone, which also did quite well. And she has an upcoming book next February, February 2021, Coming out called the Four Winds, which I've been lucky enough to read an early copy of, and it's amazing. Um, but Kristen Hannah has a huge backlist of books that she's published. She's been writing for you know twenty some years, and I I don't actually the Nightingale was the first book of hers that I read, and then I went back and read her backlist, and to be honest, I like some of them even better than the Nightingale. But that's what it takes. It's just you know you discover an author, and then. It's to me, it's a gift when they have this deep backlist, and you can go back and and discover things that they wrote earlier in their career. And um, sometimes publishers repackage those books so they look more like the popular book that people know. Um, but yes, that is a very um, it's a common experience to want to surround yourself with an author's work.
4: One to ask you also, number nine on the list is a book called Memorial" by Brian Washington. And this is it's got interracial relationship, Japanese-American, African American, same sex relationship between these two men. And then you take in the culture of Japan with the mother coming in. This is just kind of a, almost a modern day family type of thing, huh?
11: That's exactly how I describe it. It's like a modern family rom-com and sort of an anti rom-com too. Um, yes, there's, um, it, it hits a lot of different, um, different sorts of family groups. And, but it's, you know, I love this book because yes, you name—you know—there's a Japanese American, there's um, the Japanese father, the Japanese mother, uh, the the black boyfriend, but it's it's people. You know, they're people. They're stripped down. It's you know, two people that are in love and having problems. One of whom is dealing with—well, they're both dealing with issues with their family. And so that's really at the core of the novel. It's really about love and family um, and how the past affects us moving forward in relationships.
4: All right. We want to make. I know you got to run. We want to make sure everybody uh, checks out the uh, the list. We've been speaking with Amazon Editorial Director Sarah Gelman, the best books of two thousand and twenty, and once again, the number one one is a Knock at Midnight: A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom by Brittany K. Barnett. Sarah, congratulations on uh, getting another list together. Thanks for coming on, and uh, let's catch up down the road.
11: Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me.
4: All right. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, when I look through the top ten. There's one book called Blacktop Wasteland about a getaway driver. Other than that, the other nine books are all poignant. You know, the caste system, white people, slave owners. The other one is a Nigerian girl sold into servitude. Um, another one is about a uh, interracial relationship in, during World War II. So I do think... And this is nothing against, um, as Sarah said, if it's if it's not a good book, she's going to put it down, and I completely believe that because I'm the same way. I have started books and uh, books that I wouldn't even sell in a garage sale. I just literally put it in the trash because it's such a piece of garbage, and then I feel dumb myself that I got duped into buying it. But I think it's the same thing nowadays with critics. Like you can't do a movie about. Um, something that's so like cutting these days. And I'm not talking about being woke and all that or overly PC. But if you do something that's like, you know, here it's a true story about a 14 year old girl who was sold into slavery in 2020, and then you say, Oh, that book sucked. How <laughs> how are you gonna look if you say that? I'm not saying that the book stinks. I'm just saying, it's got, if you're a book critic, it's got to be a hard thing. What do you think about that book where the girl was sold into slavery and it was a true story? Ah, that sucked. You're insensitive. Blah. All right. I'm Rick Tittle. Come on back on the other side. John Feinstein. Speaking of authors, let's just roll right into one of the biggies right there. I'm Rick Tittle. Come on back.
1: That's 800-403-5912.
10: When do broadcasters
7: go too far? Where does hilarity stop and vulgarity begin? I remember how it all began. I used to sing dirty rap
6: to my east side fans back then. I knew you couldn't stop this rap. No MC. Don't ask Rick Tittle to bring it, because it already done got brought.
4: Thank you for that, and welcome back to the show. Nice to have you with us coast to coast, border to border, around the world on American Forces Radio Network. Always great when we get John Feinstein on the show, Uh, New York Times bestselling author, very prolific, and uh, he has a new book out. Part of the Warmer series. It's called Game Changers. Saving the team means more than winning or losing. Uh, John, uh, once again, we appreciate you uh, having you on. Welcome back. Um, what was it about writing books geared towards youngsters? Why did you, because you were successful at just the adult crowd. Why, why did you think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to those, those adolescents and those preteens. I need to get the message across. What was the, the start of all that?
10: Rick, well, thanks for having me on again. I always appreciate it. Um, I'll give you as short an answer to that question as I can. Uh, It starts with the fact that I had uh, preteen kids uh, in 2005 when I first started writing kids' books. Uh, Game Changers is now my 14th. Um, But it was my wife who suggested to me that maybe I should take a a swing at writing uh, sports books for kids because there were – she was in the publishing business, and, and there weren't that many books in that genre at the time. And obviously, I know sports, and I had kids, uh, so why not take a shot at it? And I've always been a believer as a reader that I like fiction to read as if it's believable, that it's, it's not completely outrageous that, that what you're reading could happen. So I set the first one of my kids' books at the Final Four, because I'd been to the Final Four at that point, I think, 28 times. Uh, and uh, it was called Last Shot. It involved two kids who won a writing contest, one that actually exists, and got to go to the Final Four, and there they stumble into this mystery. And the book did amazingly well. It won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for mystery writing in the young adult uh, category and was a New York Times bestseller, and it was fun because my two kids who were then, my two older kids, I now have a 10-year-old, but my two older kids who were 11 and 8 at the time helped me you know, to make sure that the kids sounded like kids in the 21st century as opposed to kids in the 19th century when I grew up. And uh, <laughs> so I've kept writing them. I've written about all different sports the same way I've done nonfiction. And this one comes comes back to basketball and, and uh, involves a couple storylines that I think are important because it, my first goal writing these books is to try to write an entertaining story because otherwise nobody will, will read it. But I also try to stick a message or two in there for the kids without preaching. And there's there's a racial element um, to part of this plot line. And as you know, race is uh, and I wrote this before George Floyd, but race has been an issue in our country and continues to be for a long time. Uh, and then there's the element of of of, of team building of, of kids learning to get along with one another. Uh, And that's where the uh, subtitle comes from, um, the way they need to when they're 11 and 12 years old. So that's a long-winded answer. I
4: apologize. No, that's great. Um, I was thinking, too, that when you become so successful as you have as an author with publishers, that you would have a bit of carte blanche to say, look, I'm going to write about this now. And they say, well, if it says John Feinstein, whatever you want. But then, of course, you hold yourself to your own high standards. Are 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 you am I correct to assume that you're in a position right now? If you said, "Hey, I'm going to do a book on D Day," they would say, "Do whatever you want," or would they say, "Nah, we don't want that from you"? Well,
10: they might say that Rick Atkinson wrote a book on it, um, who's brilliant. But uh, you're you're sort of right. But you know, when I first proposed Last Shot, as I said, the first one of these books, uh, my publisher uh, at Little Brown, the, the children's publisher at Little Brown, who had little idea who I was said, nah, don't think so. Oh, well, or she made a, a token offer, a small offer, because my editor uh, at Little Brown said, look, John is very successful for us on the nonfiction side. So she made a token offer that my, my agent found insulting, and it worked out great, because she took the book um, to a woman named Nancy Cisco at Knopf, who happened to also be Carl Hiaasen's editor, uh, on his kids' books. She loved the idea, bought it for a very generous price, and we had a great run of success together, so uh, I, I, I always want to thank the woman at Little Brown who turned, turned down the idea. And uh, to some degree, uh, I, generally speaking, I, when I have an idea, my editors will go along with it, but the world has changed in publishing. I mean, even John Grisham and, and Danielle Steele and the people who write multi-million dollar books um, aren't having it quite as easy as we all did 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now, unfortunately, in the old days when I pitched a book, like when I wanted to do my Army-Navy book, a Civil War in 1995, uh, my editor, Michael Peach, was skeptical. You know, they they don't play for national championships. Why will anybody care? I said, because the stories of these kids are worth telling. And he said, okay, if you want to do it, let's do it. And we did. If I made that same proposal today, Michael Peach would say, yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I have to run it by the sales staff. And uh, frankly, I, I think sales staffs know as much about what makes a good book as I know about selling books.
4: <laughs> Speaking with John Feinstein, the new book is Game Changers. And you bring up Army-Navy, something that, um, you know, I do the show on, on American Forces, and uh, every year I go to Army-Navy, do my show from Radio Row, I know and, you, do, yeah. you know, s- sit down with Staubach and all those, those great guys, for instance, Vince Papali. And, of course, this year we can't do it. Um, Army and Navy just put out yesterday what their commemorative uniforms are going to look like. They always get me fired up. My dad was a naval officer, so I've always watched Army Navy. Do you think that that game has kind of had? I don't know. Maybe it's because USAA has pumped a lot of publicity into it, but it's kind of making a comeback, isn't it?
10: Yeah, it, it, but it has over a, a long period of time. Um, you know, uh, I think we've since our most recent wars, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, There's a lot more respect for the military, which is great. I love seeing it. Obviously, having written a civil war, I have many friends who have been in the military. Some are still in the military. Many of them have deployed uh, during those wars. Um, And and so I love seeing it. But, yes, I think there's more respect for the game. And I also think the fact that the teams have been generally good in the 21st century. I mean, both Army and Navy – have had some very good wins. I mean, Navy's beaten Notre Dame four times. Navy should never beat Notre Dame. Notre Dame has every possible advantage you can have, and all the military academies have every possible disadvantage, starting with the fact that you're going to be in the service for five years when you graduate. So if you're a kid and you have any dreams of playing in the NFL, you're going to run from the room at the thought of that. They can't take transfers the way schools do now all the time, and yet they're still you know really competitive football teams and they you know I was so angry when Donald Trump attended the Army Navy game as the president elect in 2016 and went on at halftime and went on and on delaying the second half kickoff when he said well they don't play very good football what the hell does he know about football you know and and I was it made a lot of people angry uh, including the players as it should have and and if you watch Army Navy Air Force play football they are good football teams. You know, they may not be Clemson or Notre Dame, although, as I said, Navy's beaten Notre Dame four times uh, in recent years. And Air Force has beaten them a couple times, too. Um, but they play very good football. They play very competitive football. They play hard. They play clean. You know they're good kids. You know what they're going to do when they graduate. They're going to go. I, I'll, I'll say one last thing, and then I'll shut up on this subject. I know I tend to go on. But you've been to the Army-Navy game, so you know what I'm talking about. When they play the national anthem, we all hear the national anthem all the time, right? But when they play the national anthem at Army-Navy and you see 4,000 cadet hands snap to salute position and 4,000 brigade of midshipmen hands snap to salute position, and you understand that every one of those young men and women has volunteered to die for our country if necessary. If you don't get a chill watching that, then something's wrong.
4: I couldn't agree more. And I remember in 2017 in, in Philly, I was down on the field and I thought, you know, I thought maybe I'll watch some of the game from the field since I could. And they all came out pregame and, you know, they were all lined up in formation and they were out there forever. And it was so cold and it was in a blizzard. I couldn't <laughs> that was feel snow my ears. Yeah. I'm from California. Yeah, but I couldn't feel my ears. I couldn't feel my hands. And I go, forget this. And I had three jackets on. I went back up to the press box. And they stood out there wearing these thin little coats. That to me was, I was like I can't believe none of these people are like getting frostbite right now. Yeah, it's just not the I, word I just,
10: stood because the brigade and the cadets stand throughout the game except at halftime. And you also know that there's no moment for me, there's no moment in sports like the end of the game when the, they play the alma maters and the two teams stand shoulder to shoulder uh, and at, at attention for each other's alma maters. And my wife, I'm always on the field at the end of the game, uh, too, because I, I love being down there. And my wife always sends me a text. It's the only football game she watches um, during the alma maters. And it always says, are you crying yet? And the answer, of course, is always yes.
4: That's great. And you know, what's funny. You talk about Notre Dame. I remember Coach Niamatololo showed that picture of like the coin toss and Notre Dame, their captains were all six six, three twenty, and the Navy right. offensive line was like six one, two twenty. And he said, "Look, there's no reason that we can win this game unless we have teamwork and we believe because these guys are all bigger and better than us. But if we play as a team, we can win. I mean, it's just an amazing accomplishment.
10: It. it, it I don't think people quite understand that. You're absolutely right." Um, and uh, I, I remember when they, they broke the streak, Navy broke the 43-year losing streak in 2007, triple overtime. Uh, they had to overcome some really bad officiating calls, which is always part of playing at Notre Dame, and the game was at Notre Dame. I was doing the radio for Navy at that point, and I I couldn't talk on the air when they finally won that game. And then they turned around and beat them again in oh nine and in 10, 2010, the day before my, my daughter was born, by the way, um, and then did it again a couple of years ago down in Orlando. And and you're right, it's an extraordinary achievement every time they do it. And when they whenever they beat a big time program, they happen to play Notre Dame every year, except for this year because of COVID. So we get to see them try to compete with them uh... every year. And Army plays them on occasion too. And has come the the year I did a Civil War, they lost to Notre Dame twenty eight twenty seven. It was the last year before overtime, and when. Army scored to make it 28-27. Bob Sutton, who was the coach, went for two. And they completed the pass. Ron Lashinsky was knocked out of bounds a foot shy of the goal line. And I asked Bob afterwards if it occurred to him to play for the tie, take the extra point, because tying Notre Dame would be a great achievement. And he said, none of my players would ever have spoken to me again if I went for a tie.
4: (laughs) Great stuff. I know we talked a lot about Army-Navy because uh, John and I both love it, but we're here to talk about Game Changers, part of the Warmer series. Uh, pick it up now, the new book by John Feinstein, our guest. Hey, John, great having you on again, uh, and uh, let's catch up soon, my friend.
10: Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Best wishes to everybody um, around the globe, as Ron Barr likes to say, and uh, happy
4: holidays. All right, you too. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break. We'll come on back on Sports Planet.
6: Always goes commando.
4: Thank you for that. A couple minutes left in the show. Coming up in the next hour, we'll have uh, Director Frank Marshall in just about 15 minutes, his new documentary about the uh, Bee Gees, which I'm really looking forward to seeing when I was a kid. The Bee Gees were about the biggest band on Earth. Um, speaking about the Army-Navy game, <clears throat> um, he said that uh, what Trump had to say as president-elect In 2018, at the game, Trump was going to be attending it. And so I thought the security was going to be, you know, through the roof. And I thought I better get there early. So on game day, you know, me, I'm Mr. History Guy. I thought I really want to go see the Brandywine Battlegrounds from Revolutionary War. So I took the train to Wilmington, Delaware, Joe Biden territory. Plus, I had never been to Delaware. So I want to do that. Took the train to Wilmington, Delaware. I got an Uber over to Brandywine, uh, freezing. But I walked the ground, saw some cool, you know, George Washington State here, literally stuff. And I remember I was down there, and two of my buddies from KBR texted me and they said, Hey, you want to go downstairs and get some breakfast? And I was like, I'm in Delaware. And a guy wrote back with no punctuation, What? Just. <laughs> Like, you're not hung over? I'm like, a little, but I want to get out here and do this. So then I thought, oh, man, I better get back to Philly because the uh, you know the, the security for Trump's going to be through the roof. And I saw all the fans lined up, and they were all getting pat, da- patted down, and it was a line around the world. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get in here? Press entrance. Nobody even looked at my ID, just flashed. I could have totally have been some sort of rogue foreign agent, just walked right in. But uh, anyway, uh, Trump uh, walked out onto the field at halftime. He waved and then he left. So I don't know if he saw one snap. But uh, of all the the most security I ever went through ever was Super Bowl Fifty. That was just a ridiculous. I mean, it was necessary. I'm not complaining. But Army Navy with Trump, nah go on in. You're with the press. You're good. All right, I'm going we get another two hours. Come on, back.
9: USA Radio News with Lance pry
13: Vaccines usually take years to develop. Under Operation Warp Speed to combat COVID-19, we got it done in well under one year. In a major announcement, the United Kingdom has approved the Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine. The two-shot process will start shipping out to UK's most vulnerable in the next 48 to 72 hours. PRESIDENT TRUMP'S CLAIM OF MASSIVE VOTER FRAUD GAINED A LOT OF TRACTION TUESDAY NIGHT AS WHISTLEBLOWERS CLAIM FIRSTHAND THE LEVELS OF VOTER FRAUD.
2: THE DAY AFTER THE ELECTION, THE POSTAL SERVICE uh, SUPERVISOR ASKED ME IF I would FORGOTTEN BALLOTS THE NIGHT BEFORE. I didn't have any. 100,000 ballots were supposedly missing in the state of Wisconsin. I can tell
4: you, I took 24 pallets from Bethpage, New York, to Lancaster,
13: addresses on them.
0: But if we don't pick the people that are making the decisions on our behalf,
6: then we have a rogue government doing whatever they want to do.
13: USA Radio News.
6: We've all heard it eat healthy. But what does eating healthy mean? Sure, there are countless diets out there, but they contradict each other. Yet all experts agree we should eat a diet rich in fruits and vegetables. Whole fruits and vegetables are the perfect fuel to power the cells in your body, giving you the stamina you need to handle your day-to-day activities. And that's what Balance of Nature is. Whole fruits and vegetables delivered to you in a convenient capsule form for only 22 cents a serving. Our proprietary blend has no additives or fillers, just the full nutritional value of a variety of 31 different fruits and vegetables. Balance of Nature provides you with a natural energy boost without a caffeine crash, a 3 o'clock slump, or an early bedtime. Experience the Balance of Nature difference for yourself by going to balanceofnature.com or by calling 1-800-2468-751 and use discount code USA.
13: Washington state's most populated county, King County, is establishing a new program to address its more than 7,000 court cases. The initiative includes using nonprofit community groups to decide the fate of offenders rather than a judge. The program will be available for first time nonviolent criminals. This will allow alleged felons to bypass facing a judge and skip jail time. Tuesday, Republican Senator and law professor Ted Cruz of Texas urged the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an appeal of a case challenged in the election results in Pennsylvania, saying the matter raises serious legal issues. A whistleblower truck driver has testified he delivered 24 pallets of filled-in ballots from New York State to Pennsylvania. Although Attorney General William Barr says there's no evidence, how many ballots are on 24 pallets? The Trump administration has invited vaccine manufacturers, drug distributors, and government officials to a COVID-19 vaccine summit next week at the White House. It's scheduled for December 8th and will be attended by the president and vice president, Mike Pence. USA Radio News.
0: At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One
5: Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in
0: animals. There's more valuable information at avma.org.
13: Illegal immigrants attempting to make their way to the United States through Mexico has surged since the presidential election. USA Radio News' Tim Berg explains.
5: Border Patrol agents are already seeing a Biden surge in illegal immigration at the southwest border, with numbers surging to 21% over the last month alone. Acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan says the worsening economic conditions south of the border are largely responsible, but illegal immigrants are also looking forward to a Biden administration. As far as some of the policy reversals we can expect, Morgan says
7: it's not just amnesty so i went down some of the policies that that are are being put out there first they're gonna uh, stop the travel ban second they're gonna stop mpp which really ended catch and release the second thing they're gonna stop deportations for at least four months they also the strategy also supports sanctuary cities to protect uh, criminal illegal aliens they're also going to reward illegal aliens with significant rewards like health care and now amnesty morgan
5: speaking there on fox news From the USA Radio News Phoenix Bureau, I'm Tim Berg.
13: During the month of October, over 66,000 individuals were apprehended between the ports of entry on our southwest border. as compared to 55,000 in September and 47,000 in August. A mysterious space object that has been captured by Earth's gravity and is widely believed to be a rocket booster from the 1960s is now visible to stargazers as it gets closer to the planet. USA Radio News, I'm Lance Pry.
4: Hey, thanks for that, and welcome back to the show. It's great to have you with us, and uh, you may participate as you see fit as well, and uh, all you got to do is just call me up at 1-800-878-PLAY, 1-800-878-7529, get it in and get it heard,
9: coast to coast,
4: border to border, and around the world on AFN, AFN, F-A-N of F-A-N, AFN, FM, Five seventy. Um, that's American forces radio network. <clears throat> we were talking about army Navy and they say we're only enemies three hours a year. Well, they do say beat army, beat Navy nonstop. I mean, that's what they're pretty much obsessed with 24 <laughs> seven. And I'm already looking forward to next year's game. And they haven't even played this one yet. They did said they'd send us some of the stuff. I, uh, mind getting the new version of the pull over there it's always good uh, good goodies as we uh, like to say i remember the first time i went this like camo duffel bag they go here's your stuff and i thought it was just the camo duffel bag and i would have been quite happy with that Then inside were a lot of goodies and clothes scarf clothes then uh the helmet that was sitting in front of me when I was doing my show and sitting down with guys, Tiki Barber, and I said Roger Staubach, Mr. Polly, the superintendent of West Point and others, Bob Rickle, sign it. And then uh, I got to keep the helmet. And I remember um, Bob Black, who was doing the show after mine, he says, we don't get to keep the helmet. I go, yeah, we do. He goes, no, we don't. I go, yeah, we do. I, goes, I'm, I said, I'm taking it. He goes, don't take the helmet. I go, you get your own helmet. He goes, are you sure? Later on, I saw him at the dinner, and he goes, you were right. Can't believe they let us keep the helmet. Not only did they let us keep the helmet, but two years in a row, I said, can you ship this back home? Because I can't take it on the plane. And they were like, sure. Oh, yeah, USAA. I was already a member. I bowed down. All right. Got Frank Marshall on the other side and open lines. We'll see you in a second.
1: We are the Debt Destroyer Network. Any debt you have, credit card, tax, student loan debt. Call now for free information that helps you destroy your debt. It's great advice. Plus, when you make this free call now, we have Debt Destroyer experts ready to help. They can show you how to destroy your debt and get your life back on track. Debt problems don't have to be overwhelming. You can live stress-free and debt-free. That's 877-360-0402.
5: This is a potter's field. When people can't pay for their funerals, they are buried here. It is a lonely, desolate place, littered with unmarked headstones. No one visits. No one leaves flowers. But it doesn't have to be that way. For as low as $1 a day, you can ensure your family will have the money to pay your funeral expenses.
1: 800-516-2499. 800-516-2499. Again, that's 800-516-2499. Paid for by Final Expense Direct. Advance is helping you get your engine ready for the road this holiday season with the right
12: oil, the right filter, at the right price every day. Get five quarts of full synthetic Mobile One, Valvoline, Castrol Edge, or Pennzoil Platinum with the Mobile One oil filter for just thirty three ninety nine. $33.99. Plus, this holiday season, get a $25 NBA store gift card and two times speed perks points instantly with the purchase of five quarts of Mobile One. Advance your auto
7: at Advance Auto Parts and participating CarQuest locations. See store for details.
4: All right. uh, Thank you for that, Lawrence. Just pretend you can't hear me through the walls. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast around the world on American Forces Radio Network. It's great to welcome back to the show prolific filmmaker Frank Marshall has uh, produced and directed so many iconic Hollywood films, but we're here to talk about his latest project. It's called The Bee Gees. How can you mend a broken heart? It's going to debut on HBO and HBO Max on December 12th. So just about 10 days. Frank, thanks for coming on the show again. And I remember last time we talked, you mentioned at the end that you were working on this and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to wait years for this. I'm happy that I only have to wait 10 days. Uh, this is, that's uh, um, exciting.
2: Yeah, thanks, Rick. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we won't be seeing it in the movie theaters, but, uh, you know, you can see it at home um, and uh, just play it loud.
4: No doubt. and And, you know, I'm, 55 and I grew up with disco and and when I was a kid when Saturday Night Fever came out I mean there just was no bigger band on the planet than the Bee Gees and I guess that's something that with any generation that's going to get lost but do you think people under 20 understand just how big the Bee Gees were
2: No it, it it's kind of my uh my goal here is to reintroduce the Bee Gees to your generation, but also introduce the Bee Gees to the new generation because you know I, I have daughters that are twenty one and twenty three, and um, when I start playing these songs like Islands in the Stream and Guilty, and they they go, Oh yeah, Barbara Streisand, Oh yeah, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton. I said, No, no, these were written by the Bee Gees. They go, What? The Sa- What? Staying Alive? Bee Gees? I go, Yeah. So. You know, I don't think people know what heavyweights they were.
4: There's no doubt. And I remember when my mom had their early stuff, you know, like <laughs> uh, you're a holiday and it's only words and all that. What What was the transition from this kind of almost effeminate, soft pop Australian band to, you know, walk in the streets of Manhattan, the coolest disco band on the planet?
12: Yeah,
2: I, I... I think that's part of their, their genius is is that they reinvented themselves and their storytellers that their, their songs, they've got great musical hooks, um, but also their lyrics tell a story and they, you know, they cut to sort some sort of collective unconscious that people have. And, and that's what makes them, uh, you know, was, was part of their longevity, obviously, but I think they're storytellers, and it's really their songwriting.
4: There's no doubt, and obviously, How Can You Mend a, a Broken Heart, one of their lyrics, and the first thing I thought of when I saw that, I think a lot of people would, was you think about uh, Andy Gibb, who was too young to join the Brothers Gibb in, in the beginning, but was a pop star in his own right, and a lot of Girls thought he was the best-looking one and perfect for the '70s yeah. with the hairy chest and everything. And and dying at the age of 30, there was there was a lot of heartbreak in this family, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it was really complicated. Um, there was a lot of joy, but there was also sadness and tragedy. Um, you know, it, it. But it all comes back to family. I mean, the fact that they you know, survived all this stuff. It was, it's really a testament to the loving relationship of their family.
4: When I think about the Bee Gees, uh, I think, you know, most of us think of Barry Gibb as the front man. And, but, you know, Robin and and, and Morris were obviously a, a huge part of it uh, as well. But what was that trio like? Was there, I mean, there's sibling rivalry. Was it a power struggle? I guess this is something we're we're going to have to watch the movie, right? Yeah, it's
2: all in the movie, but it, it was all of those things. It's it, you know, it's everything you get from being a brother band, and you know they 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 started to have success very early, and then they turned twenty, and they all went well. You know, then there's the competition, then there are girls, then there's money, all the things that that you know get in the way of being together. So we see that, but you know, it was. Again, being a family, so when they broke up, they still had to come back together for Christmas. <laughs> so um, th- they then realized how much they loved each other and how much they liked um, you know, singing and, and writing together, because it was a group effort. They each brought something to the party. So I think that's what's interesting in the story.
4: more questions for director frank marshall about how can you mend a broken heart on hbo on the 12th when they started off because we think of them as the 70s and the 80s but when they started off in the late 60s and you see some guys in the band you know there's five guys and two of them aren't gibbs um i guess like any band they had to figure out what they wanted to do right
2: yeah they um they had the three of them but you know they needed a drummer they needed a bass player and Eventually, a, a keyboard player to become uh, competitive in in the band world. But you know, when you when you see the movie, you'll see that it was their dad was really their manager and supported and, and somehow got a letter and a meeting with um, with Robert Sigwood uh, because of uh, Brian Epstein uh, because they all loved the Beatles. So it, it was this it's this incredible journey of of, you know, being in the right place at the right time, of luck, but also delivering when you're asked to. So, um, yeah. So, they you know, there was a period when they had an orchestra, and then they thought, eh, that's not working. We need to become a band again. So they went and got some new band members. So we see all that and how they adapted to the changing times and trends.
4: You know, it's interesting, too. I think a lot of people think about Saturday Night Fever as, kicking off disco, you know, four number one hits on that album. But I saw an interview once with Bill Oaks, who supervised the soundtrack and he asserted that disco had kind of run its course and was dying and that this kind of defibrillated disco and got it started all over again.
2: Yeah. And, and actually Bill speaks to that in the movie. He um, They added melody, you know, disco was just a rhythm and, and they added melody and, and lyrics that connected to people. So, um, they kind of reinvented it and then they were they were pretty upset that people were sort of tarring them with this brush that they were a disco band when they you know, they weren't.
4: When you were doing the research on this, what was maybe one of the two of the things that you know, because we, we, we've all been so exposed to them in so many ways, but one or two things you thought, geez, I never knew that about the BGs. Well my
2: favorite one is is when they um, when Stigwood said to them they were already in Miami and he said you know um, you guys need a tax break so you got to go record this album in France outside of Paris and we found this great place for you it's the chateau that Elton John used to to uh, record and mix um, Honky Chateau and they were all excited and everything and he went to France and they went outside and they arrived at the chateau. And it was a dump. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I, and, and still, that's where Saturday Night Fever and, and all those tracks came from. So it obviously didn't bother them.
4: Last question for you, Frank. Um, of course, Barry Gibb, um, you know, knighted by the Queen. He's in his 70s now. He's the last one with, with us. Uh, how has he received the project and, and how's he doing these days?
2: Well, Barry's doing great. I I have to say, uh, Rick because um you know, he's he's got a new album coming out. He's become creative again and he was um on stage in Glastonbury a couple of years ago, so he's been performing um and uh I think it was it was really for me it was a real honor to get to talk to him and and hear his stories. And uh, I'm really proud of this movie, and and hopefully can you know it it shows that the Bee Gees will be around a uh, hundred years from now, and it, it celebrates their legacy.
4: Well, I would be excited about any Bee Gees documentary, especially one coming from Frank Marshall, who really knows what he's doing. It's called The Bee Gees: How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, debuting on HBO and HBO Max December 12. Frank, congratulations. Looking forward to seeing it, and let's catch up on your next deal. Great, thanks,
2: Paul. Good to talk to you again. Take care. All
4: right, good stuff. I'm Rick Tuddle, and there it is, Dominic. Well done.
3: I can think of
13: younger days when living for my life was everything a man could want to do.
11: I could never see
3: too far. You must be crazy. Use a DOG. And if you was my man, I would have been kicked you out of my house by now. This is what had happened.
4: This is what had happened. Welcome back to the show. And uh, we got open lines the rest of the way. It was great talking with Sarah Goldman, John Feinstein, and uh, Frank Marshall. But uh, it's all sports talk the rest of the way. 1 800 878 play saw word that the NBA's tentative opening night will be a doubleheader on December 22nd that's before Christmas on the calendar Nets versus Warriors in Brooklyn and Lakers and Clippers in wait for it in Los Angeles and uh <clears throat> KD you down with KDD uh, you know me that should definitely be uh an interesting uh proposition uh also, of course, today is the deadline day to tender or make non-tender uh, Major League uh, Baseball players. The A's, by the way, this is so A's. They signed catcher Francisco Pena to a minor league deal. A 31-year-old played 58 games for the Cardinals two years ago, a career two sixteen hitter. Uh, if that doesn't say Oakland A's, I don't know what does, <laughs> because it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. 1-800-878-PLAY. Uh, and let's get into the decisions on who's being tendered and who's being non-tendered. Because if you think about last year, Kevin Gosman was non-tendered, and he's just signed a qualifying offer with the Giants. Think about Blake Trinan being non-tendered. And he was on the bump in the World Series, getting a ring. Cesar Hernandez, Taiwan Walker, they were all non-tendered. But the list of non-tendered players is going to be record-breaking. If you look back five years ago, there were 36 players non-tendered. Last year, there were 53. And it's only going to go up because of the coronavirus uh, revenue hit that these teams have taken. So if you think about right now, the list... Of the top 50 free agents, only five have signed. That's 45 of the... Now, I'm not saying these guys are Hall of Famers, but if you're looking to add a free agent, teams are looking and being, eh. Nah, I don't think so. So, I'm just looking at maybe the biggest non-tender decision with each team. And let's just take it in alphabetical order. The Diamondbacks' biggest non-tender decision... Might be their catcher, Carson Kelly. It's not huge. I mean, they cut Junior Guerra. So, kind of, Kelly gets the nod by default. Um, I mean, he's 26-year-old catcher with four years of control. <laughs> but uh, the only other arbitration-eligible players are Caleb Smith and Luke Weaver. By the way, my A's signed Tony Kemp. To like a 1.05 million dollar deal, and at first I thought it said 10 million. I was like, "What? A guy you wouldn't even plan to play in the playoffs got 10 mil? No, it was one mil." They also signed Birch Smith, former Royal and Giant, who when he got with the A's was amazing in 12 games, and then did his forearm and was out for the season. They always they also kept around Chad Pinder. Uh, heard a rumor that maybe uh, Marcus Simeon walks uh, as a free agent, that Matt Chapman could play short. And that Chad Plunder would play third. You might say, why would you take a platinum glove guy and move him? And Yeah, I mean, he's good. This whole th- I, I've seen him make some, make some stupid plays. If he can play shortstop the way he plays third, why wouldn't you want him at short? The Braves infielder, Johan Camargo. I mean, the, the huge season that Adam Duvall had took him off the non-tender chopping block that kept him around um austin riley at third has been connected to some bigger names as well they've been thinking about maybe bringing in chris bryant we'll see the orioles hanser alberto their uh, infielder and this guy is a very good hitter but he's punching judy and uh, that doesn't always work When uh, you can't hit any home runs. But here's the thing the Orioles aren't exactly rich in infield depth. And if you want to spend $3 million on a guy with no power, they could have. I mean, they had Renato Nunez, the former A's prospect, who hit double digit home runs. And they brought him in and replaced him with Chris Shaw, who is a former uh, Giants farmhand. So we'll see about that. Um, looking uh, over at the uh, Red Sox now, you look at a guy like Matt Barnes. He's projected to get $4 million in arbitration. They could, let, all they want to do is save money. That's what we've seen this last year. So you would probably think that. Um, the Cubs. Now, here's the thing. Why would you non-tender Chris Bryant? This was something that, remember the whole thing about not calling him up until they could keep him for that extra year? Well, this is the extra year. And in arbitration, he would get probably about $19 million. And this was a grievance that took nearly five years to resolve. But this guy's 28 years old. He's a former MVP. He was an all-star in 2019. He was not good this year. He was playing hurt most of the time. But the Cubs also, I mean, they got guys like Albert Armora, Jose Martinez, and Kyle Schwarber are non-tender candidates. Let me just tell you right now, they're not going to non-tender Chris Bryant. They're not. On the south side of town, Carlos Rodon probably get about 5000000 um, He, million. They're not going to non-tender him. Some people think that they're likely to non-tender Nomar Mazzara, who People think that he's already kind of spun his wheels in the big league, probably projected to get about $6 million. Um, you know, Tommy John surgery as well. I, I don't know. I, I, that would be very surprised about that. But the Reds, biggest non-tender decision, probably Brian Goodwin. But let us see, two and a half mil, three mil in arbitration. The, the Reds gave up two pretty good prospects to get Goodwin at the trade deadline. But does that mean his roster is secure? They, they still have to figure out where Nick Senzel is going to play. You know, one of the top overall picks a couple of years ago. And, you know, Goodwin, if you're a Reds fan, you would say he's our sixth best outfielder. And teams on a budget usually don't give $3 million to a role player. But if you squint your eyes, maybe you could see Archie Bradley as a non-tender candidate, given a projected salary of about $5 million. So that could open up things there as well in the Queen City. Uh, staying in Ohio with the Indians, probably biggest non tender decision is Austin Hedges, the catcher who would make about $3 million. In ARB, he was part of that Mike Clevenger trade, and Cleveland, I think, is too thin behind the plate. You cut him loose. They did pick up Roberto Perez's option, which was $5.5 million. And this is a team also that's just trying to save money. Remember, money is apparently so tight that, forget the Lindor thing and letting him walk away or trading him before it happens, but they cut Brad Hand, the guy that gave up Francisco Mejia, the top-catching prospect in baseball, to the Padres to get Brad Hand. So if you're an outfielder like Delano DeShields Jr. or maybe even Tyler Naquin, you could see yourself being... Remember, you can non-tender as many guys as you want. Um, And then uh, Colorado... John Gray, about $6 million projected. And remember, the Rockies are the team that sent their season ticket holders a letter saying, payroll's coming down. The quote was, there will be nothing normal about this offseason as the industry faces a new economic reality. Well, you could non-tender Gray and chop off $6 million right there. You know, he's only 29 years old. What was he, the second overall pick? Uh, not very great this year, but... When you play at Coors Field and you have a guy like John Gray for $6 million, that's nothing. I hold on to that guy with two hands. Other guys who could be non-tender the couple of Diazes, Elias and Jairo, Chichi Gonzalez, and uh, Tony Walters, another catcher, could go as well. Um, you know. But, uh, by the way, on the other side of the break, I'll get into the other teams as well and some of their needs, but the whole thing about Playing three years in the bigs, then you get three years of arbitration, and then you get paid. I mean, you, you're going to get paid for the six years that you put in already. It's very rare that a guy puts in the six years and is still looking at some a lot of great years ahead, and that was the thing about Manny Machado and Bryce Harper a couple years ago is that they were both 26. Usually, these guys are like Evan Longoria's age, and you have to pay them for something they did in the past. All right, I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break and we'll look at the other ARB cases. Come on back on Sports Bio.
5: Sales are rising quickly, but without another lead baker, Dale's Bakery is going to feel the heat.
0: Hey, you're baking alone today. I have to handle this order for the restaurant down the street. Cool, but who's going to handle the pastries?
5: He needs to hire.
0: I need Indeed.
5: Indeed you do. The moment you sponsor a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates from our resume database. Indeed delivers two and a half times more hires than the other branded job sites combined, according to Breezy HR 2019. Visit Indeed.com slash credit and get a $75 credit for your first job post. Terms and conditions apply.
8: and you have to reapply sunscreen every 2 hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equals healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov/sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration.
3: Tittle is a majestic stallion.
4: Thank you for that, and uh, welcome back to the show, Rick Tittle, with you coast to coast. I don't know if you are on Twitter, but there's this this guy Rex Chapman who he tweets out politically liberal stuff, but he also tweets out a lot of sweet, touching stuff and funny stuff. I don't follow him, but I think because Ken Korak follows him, I get. <laughs> Whoever Kent Korak follows, I get like little tweets. But there was this thing in the last day or two. This <laughs> they're showing this evangelist priest, the guy who laughed when Biden won, ha ha ha. But anyway, he's doing this thing where he's saying, "Covid, I demand you get out." But then there's like a rock groove to it, and it's actually with the words and his tone. It's just so amazing. Uh, I could watch that. Over and over. Turn off this show and go watch that right now. Now, I want to get back to biggest non-tender candidates. And the first one is chicken tenders. And tender love and care. Chicken tenders and TLC are on the list. As is Matthew Boyd with the Tigers. What? They kind of overplayed their hand a little bit when they dangled him on the trade market. They were trying to get Gleyber Torres from the Yanks. But... I mean, if you think about a guy who's going to be projected to make about six and a half mil through ARB, the Tigers right now, you know who's the only guy with a guaranteed contract? Miguel Cabrera, who is 48 years old. So the Tigers want to cut payroll. Why do you want to get rid of Matthew Boyd on the bump? There are other guys there. Nico Goodrum, Buck Farmer, Michael Fulmer, Daniel Norris. You're going to cut Michael Fulmer too? Who's going to pitch for you? The Astros, Aledmas Diaz projected about 3 mil. And I could see that. Aledmas Diaz was not good, uh, even though he hit a home run against the A's in the playoffs. But they outrighted Roberto Zuno a few weeks ago. And he would have got more than 10 million in arbitration because this guy, at his age, has 155 saves. Uh, he also had a brutal domestic violence case against him as well. But um, with Ozuna gone, the only other arbitration players, eligible players on the team are Carlos Correa and Lance McCullers, and they're not going anywhere. But listen, someone's going to play Diaz. He's not horrible. He just is not great. And if they want to save cash, that would be a way. Uh, With the Royals, maybe a Michael Franco projected at about 5 mil. This was a guy who had a breakout season like five years ago. But um, he's, listen, he got non-tendered last year too. That's a pretty hefty salary projection for a guy who's not even going to be a free agent. Uh, until after next year, the uh, Angels, Hansel Robles, about four million out of the bullpen for him. Um, but I think quietly the Angels, they've done a pretty good job on the waiver wire in recent years when it comes to the pen. I mean they've gotten. He was a claim, and he's done very well for them. In fact, he was the closer uh, in twenty nineteen. But they're going to keep him. They don't have a lot of pitchers. And so you look at these other non-candidate guys like Justin Anderson and Kenya Middleton and Noe Ramirez. Noe Ramirez pitches every Angels game. And the A's always seem to shell him, so I hope he sticks around. Uh, The Dodgers, look, their arbitration class... Cody Bellinger, Walker Buehler, Corey Seager, Julio Arias. Those guys will all get paid. They'd much rather lock them up, but they can let them win a a claim. But uh, I don't know. Who would be their guy? Scott Alexander. So they're not faced with any big decisions. The Marlins, maybe their first baseman, Jesus Aguilar, about $4 million. Um, But then you could also say Jose Urania who's projected for about $4 million as well. Um, the thing about Miami is they actually have some arms, and Urania has not pitched well the last couple of years, Outside if he wants to uh, hit Acuna on the Braves for having the temerity of being good and young simultaneously. Um, the brave, the Brewers, I should say, Corey Knable... million salaries, and there have been few teams as aggressive with non-tenders as the Brewers have been lately. I mean, they non-tendered eight players in the last two years. They spent the early part of winter cutting payroll through option declines. That's probably not a good sign for other non-tender candidates, but you think about a guy who got paid in arbitration last year, Josh Hader got paid in arbitration. Other guys there, I mean, Ben Gamble, Jace Peterson. We'll get to the other teams here in a second, but we have a call from Vince in Lafayette. What's going on, Vince?
12: Yeah, I was going to keep the same subject. Is um, The baseball, I remember Ray Fossey was talking about this, was the hard thing is about baseball players is, first you got the first three years where they get you cheap, then the second year is arbitration, then the next big one is the four years after that is you get the ten years where you get your retirement. And very few players make that ten years. It's just one of the hardest things to do. And the big argument for the new contract coming up, I guess, one more year for baseball is that um, they want to reduce it um, to four years, um, where it goes two years and you go arbitration for two years and become a um, what you call a free agent, and then after and then it goes from ten years to eight years until you get your retirement instead of ten years. I think that'd be a lot fairer for the players because. I mean, if you really think about it, how many players really make it past six years? It's very few. I mean, if you think well, what about I would it... like,
4: what I would like to see is I would like to see team control remain at six years. But yeah, I'd like to start the R year a year earlier. So what I would do is I would have them play two years and then go four R years. Because when I I root for a team that is a, that are cheapskates, so as much team control <laughs> as I can get. I you want. Got
12: me here, too, I do the same thing. I'm a big A's fan, and it's really sad. But, I mean, that's a big – I hope they reduce their retirement to eight years at least because so few players make it to ten years. Um, and then uh, I, I heard about the Chapman thing. But there's the other thing is they the A's have a really good shortstop. I'm trying to remember his name. It's off the tip of my tongue. It's because I haven't seen him play yet because he hasn't – because of the stupid Nick thing Allen. that came out this – Yeah, that's his name. He's supposed to be um, – like an Ozzy Smith, I don't know how true that is, but they they described the same as Chapman when I was when I was reading the minor. My- I always this is how bored my life is. I read the minor league guys. So when Chapman was coming up, they said Fields uh, like you know a genius, but uh, hitting's questionable. They put the same thing with Allen, super glove. Uh,
4: Allen actually hit about two ninety last year. He was drafted out of high school. He was supposed to go to UCLA. I think he was second or third round and. I predicted at the time that he would be the starting shortstop when they opened the stadium at uh, the Peralta site. That never went through, obviously. But uh, yeah, Nick Allen is a defensive wizard.
12: Yeah, and I heard he's supposed to be. Um, um, well, I don't know if he's going to be here anymore, Billy Bean, but he was really high on him to bring him up to take over, um, you know, to replace our current shortstop. But he, because he doesn't have to hit 290. I mean, they said if he bats 220 because he's such a
4: great glove, they'd be really happy with it. But, I mean, he hits, about if Chapman. he hit 220, he'd be Matt Chapman.
12: Yeah, and, I mean, and Chapman is, hits enough home runs. Well, then, yeah, I mean, then Chapman think, will
4: hit 25 home runs, but Nick Allen will hit three, yeah.
12: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I'm just saying, I look at Chapman, he takes the least a hit away every game. Um, and, and and to me, that's worth it. I, you know, for his average, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with Chapman. I think Chapman also, uh, also makes everybody look good. Um Olsen is the guy I really hope the A's keep long term. If I had to pick one player, he'd be my number one player on the A's. Is uh, just because I just hope his average goes up a little bit. But if it doesn't, they'll get him cheaper than they normally would have to. And I don't think they have to pay him twenty million a year. I think they probably get a lot, maybe fifteen or twelve a year for Olsen. Uh, for Olson. But I um, the other question I have, because I'm an A's fan. Do you see the A's because everything is cheap right now, all the homeowners are getting cheap? Do you see anybody signing anybody the A's at all free agent?
4: No, the A's I mean, as I said they made a minor league deal today for a guy and team no, makes good. No, they're not gonna it's the, listen, major leagues major league salary minimum is six hundred K. That's what they want to play their players and that's what sucks about them. Yeah, the other The other thing I was going to let
12: you know, I don't know if you were following this, but the hockey um they signed an agreement, you know I think it was like a ten year agreement in June, but the owners are lost so much money because nobody's watching them on TV and they didn't realize this and you know no fans and stands for this long. they're they're asking for the players to take it like a, a close to fifty percent pay cut across the board for one year. Otherwise, they're going to scrap the season because they said they lost so much money, it'd be cheaper to shut it down than to, than to pay them for it, you know, and to not have fans in the stands. Do you think the players are going to agree to something like a pay cut, or do you think we might not have the hockey season next year?
4: We will have a hockey season. That's a load of trash that they would take the whole year off. 50% is way too high. If that's what they said, that's just a bargaining start. The thing about hockey, though, remember, hockey is the one sport that gave in – and gave the salary cap. Uh, they gave it up, just like you know football did. Remember when Eddie D was running the Niners? There was no salary cap. He could pay Montana yeah. and Young whatever he wanted. I love
12: that. I love that. That was my favorite era. <laughs> that was my favorite. I wish to. I wish to. Um. The. If I had a, to have a wish, I wish the Warriors owner would buy the A's. That'd be my wish.
4: Yeah. No. No doubt about it. I mean, Joe Joe Jacob is a weirdo, but he wants to win, and that's all you can ask.
12: Yeah, he would be the, could you imagine if he bought the A's? Could you imagine all of a sudden, he, there's no salary cap. He could spend whatever he wants. He could have any You know what, who, that
4: um, Ken Hoffman and Al Davis tried to buy the A's from Charlie Finley when he sold them to Marvin Davis in Denver. And, of course, Ken Hoffman did finally get them when he bought them with Steve Schott. But at the time, Al Davis wanted to change the A's colors to silver and black. And I was all for it. I thought that would be cool because all Al wants to do is win. But at the time, there was a rule that you couldn't have an NFL team and an MLB team. And they were going to move to Denver, which is the biggest hellhole on the face of the earth. And so, thank goodness, the Haas family came in and saved them. No, I I disagree with you. I think Cleveland is. (laughs) I think that's the a Listen, I like Cleveland.
12: (laughs) Well, they got the they got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so that's the one. I night was there. Thing I
4: was there in the '80s before all that, but I had a good old time in Cleveland. I hate Denver just because of the Broncos. You have to remember that.
12: Well, I hate the Broncos too. I mean, the only thing I used to hate more than the Broncos was the Chargers, and I bought a tar- garbage can with the Chargers thing on it because I hate them so much. I like to throw garbage on them. That's what's <laughs> in my room.
4: Less like me, I could never buy a Ford Bronco or a Dodge Charger or any of those cars. And I could never buy a Kia. Could you imagine driving something on the freeway that says KIA on it?
12: No. But, I mean, I get crap from my son all day long because I bought a Prius uh, because I was trying to be environmental because I'm, you know. But he says it's the ugliest car in the road. I mean, he just got to. You know
4: something about the Prius? I got to run to a break. Do you know that they designed the Prius to be super ugly because if they made it look cool, no one would ever buy any of their other cars. So they had to make their car that made the most sense, their most economical car, their best car, look ugly so the other ones would still sell. Take that to the bank, Vince, I gotta run to a break. I'm Rick Tittle, come on back on Sports Pilot.
1: I'm just a caveman. Your world frightens and confuses me. <laughs> Rick Tittle
3: wants to hear from you. The phone call is free, y'all. Just dial 1-800-878-PLAY to get yourself on the air right now. Call him up now, lazy ass. 1-800-878-PLAY.
0: But I don't think you should be butting in when I'm talking to my team. You're my assistant, okay? You're supposed to back me up and go get me juice boxes when I tell you. Now go get me a juice box. You know who you're talking to? I'm talking to the juice box guy. You're crazy. Well, I'm not crazy. I'm just thirsty. Why don't you go to hell? No, you go to hell. Why are you there? Why don't you grab me a juice box? I'm no juice box boy. I'll tell
1: you that. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not.
4: All right. Goodness gracious. What is going on? We have another hour together, and uh, I like to call it Our Hour because it's free of stupid guests. No, it's free for uh, all your calls and your texts and your insights. And <clears throat> one thing about me I'll say, and it's the only thing I'll say about myself. No, but the one thing I will mention is that I actually like when people call up. And I will go to complete non sequiturs. I'll be right in the middle of something try to finish up at least a sentence or two i'll get to the call and it could be completely something else do you know that that does not work on any other sports talk station it just doesn't because and i i don't tell the screener to do this dominic but if he said you know i'm in i'm talking about arbitration cases and someone calls and says you know i want to talk about hockey every other station in the world we're not talking about that right now you know what i don't care Let's talk some sports. What? Well, I'm so philanthropic. I'm such a hero. All right, <laughs> I'm Rick Tittle. We got another hour together, so come on back on Byline.